What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Dialing back, the U.S. eases restrictions on China's Huawei. Footing the bill, the biggest shoe brands telling President Trump tariffs would be, quote, catastrophic. And setting the gold standard, how one cannabis firm is doing its best to fill the gaps in regulation. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move this Tuesday. And right now, actually, I'm calling it Turnaround Tuesday, temporary though it might be. Take a look at what we're seeing for U.S. futures at this moment. A real shift compared to what I was talking to you about in yesterday's early session. We're seeing a bounce, a sigh of relief, perhaps after the U.S. government announced a temporary reprieve, as I mentioned, for companies doing business with China's Huawei. And that, of course, is going to be the sector to watch. The Nasdaq shed some one and a half percent yesterday. The Philly Semiconductor Index lost some 4%. Just for perspective, that chip index specifically is down over 15% from the April highs. Half of that loss coming in the last three sessions. The chipmakers' troubles only compounded yesterday by reports that the Federal Trade Commission is expanding its antitrust probe into the sector too. What about at the stock level, though? Apple losing 3%, Broadcom 6%, Qualcomm a further 6% too, some of the highest profile casualties in the session yesterday. So watch all of these players today so you get a sense of just how confident investors are that the Huawei reprieve actually lasts. Can we get a trade deal in the next 90 days? By contrast, though, and it is an important one, the S&P 500 did finish down a more measured six-tenths of 1%, just three-tenths of 1% lower for the Dow right now. There was also some pretty fascinating commentary coming from China overnight, too. The People's Daily, to be specific, saying that repeated misjudgment by the United States could produce grave consequences. This is the quote, though. Attempts to impede the historical progress of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation will be like a, quote, a mantis trying to stop a car with its arms. Have a think of that imagery there. Wowzers. In this vein, something more specific, watch the Chinese currency, the Chinese yuan weakening against the US dollar overnight too. The key level to keep in mind, seven in dollar China cross rates. That threshold was last breached back in 2008 and is seen as a line in the sand here. If it breached, then oh boy, would that be a huge challenge to any future trade talks. All right, let's get to the drivers because I want to talk you through what happened with the White House, of course, and Huawei. The US government temporarily loosening those restrictions on Huawei's products. Many rural American internet providers rely on the company's technology. Samuel Burke joins me now. Samuel, a 90-day reprieve. The question is, does this mean just three more months of uncertainty, or at least in the short term, it's a good thing for companies in the United States that were going to be severely impacted simply overnight? 
you can view this 90-day extension through two very different lenses. If you believe this is all about national security and American businesses, you could say, well, these 90 days are to help companies like Google and Qualcomm adjust. I see Qualcomm stock is up about 3% in pre-trade, by the way. So if you believe it's all about national security, well, then it's helping those companies and then it really gets to business. But if you believe it's not about national security and you believe that this is all about the trade war, U.S.-China tensions, you can view the these 90 days then as really an opportunity for uh, Trump to get Xi to the table, just the negotiating table, just like he did with ZTE. So he's put out his maximum negotiating point and said, now I'm creating a 90 day space for you to come to the table. The question is, will he come to that table, Julia? Yeah. And you and I were discussing the possibility of this just being a pawn in the trade battle. I guess my counter to this would be Huawei is so much bigger than ZTE. And now you've got the whole of Congress. You've got Republicans and Democrats backing Trump's firmer stance here, backing down here for the president, surely much, much harder. Much harder. And as we've always said, the danger of the trade war, if it is about the trade war, even if it's not about the trade war, frankly, is once you've done something, it is harder to walk it back and certainly hard to walk back something so large. Your point about, uh, well, market size, let's say, it, ZTE is nothing compared to Huawei. And what I'm really intrigued about here is what Huawei is doing and saying. Take a listen to what the founder of Huawei told media earlier today about their plans. Our peripheral low-end products could be affected. We think that's inevitable. We weren't ready in some areas, so we got affected. But in the most advanced areas, at least for 5G, there's no impact whatsoever. So the consumer side is clearly being hit. It sounds like they're being honest there, but they're saying on the 5G side, the other half of their business, they're good. Another note, they're launching the Honor Phone. That's a Huawei company that doesn't use the same marketing brand name. It's called Honor going forward, saying that it's an Android device that's going to market very soon. We'll see it launched uh, in the next few minutes here. Sneaky question, Samuel. Do we believe them on 5G technology? Listen, they've done so well in 5G and they've always played the long game here that even if it's not true, we know that they've been planning since 2018, so it will right. be true very soon if it's not. Yeah, great point. Samuel Burke, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our second driver. A big day for U.S. retail earnings too. Home Depot earnings beat estimates, but shares in Coles and JCPenney in free fall after they disappointed. That's pre-market. Paul and Monica joins me now. A department store disaster, Paul. Talk me through what we heard from JCPenney and Coles here. Yeah, JCPenney, uh, Julia, has been struggling for some time. It is almost literally a penny stock because the shares are hovering around the $1 level. And JCPenney has a new CEO. She's trying to turn things around, but I think it's going to be a slow grind in order to fix this company. Hopefully it can avoid the fate of Sears, which, uh, you know, we know how bad things got there. Kohl's is a bit more of a surprise because under CEO Michelle Gass, there had been a lot of hype about Kohl's being innovative. They're doing these partnerships with Amazon where you can come and return Amazon goods at Kohl's stores. They're leasing out space to Planet Fitness and Weight Watchers and uh, you know Aldi as well, the big grocery store chain. But Kohl's reported a surprise drop in same-store sales, and investors are unforgiving because Kohl's was a turnaround retail story that a lot of people bought into, and it's starting to look like this turnaround is going to take a lot longer to materialize. 
Yeah, and investors realizing that, I think, pre-market as well. What about for Home Depot here, too? Because I just mentioned that their earnings beat, but then I look through some of the details here and their same-store sales were the weakest they've been in, what, almost three years. Talk to me about what's going on beneath the surface here. Yeah, Home Depot's same-store sales growth in the U.S. was solid in, in light of what's going on in the rest of retail, but still a slightly disappointing number compared to what analysts were expecting. The stock is down a tiny bit pre-market, but I think Home Depot is still holding up really well because the housing market remains relatively strong. They did cite poor weather in February as a problem. Also, tumbling lumber prices, deflation in that part of an important uh, product category for Home Depot hurt them as well. But Home Depot is doing much better than a lot of other big box retailers. It's going to be interesting to see what Lowe's, their top rival, reports tomorrow because Lowe's, remember, now has new CEO Marvin Ellison, formerly of JCPenney, trying to steer a turnaround at that company. Yeah, watch this space. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to move on now to Iran because the Iranians are saying they won't negotiate with President Trump unless the U.S. shows respect regarding the nuclear deal. Fred Pikin is in Tehran for us. He's been speaking exclusively to the Iranian foreign minister. The likelihood of that greater respect, at least towards uh, this nuclear deal from the United States, feels pretty negligible. What else did uh, he have to say, Fred? Mm. Well, you're absolutely right. It seems as though right now it's not really in the cards for the U.S. to return to the nuclear agreement. But the Iranians are saying, look, if that nuclear agreement is to survive, if Iran is not going to leave that nuclear agreement as well at some point, they want to reap some of the benefits, some of the economic benefits that they say they were promised by the nuclear agreement. Now, to a great extent, Julia, he was talking about the Europeans trying to make it possible for the Iranians to, for instance, sell their oil on international markets. But he also said at this time he doesn't believe there's any sense in the Iranians talking to the U.S. after the U.S. left the nuclear agreement. Let's listen to what Jawad had to say. The United States is engaging in economic warfare against Iran. It has to stop. Economic war means targeting Iranian people. That has to stop. The United States does not have the legal position, does not have the moral position, does not have the political position, does not have the international position to impose economic war on Iran. Iran is not interested in escalation. We have said very clearly that we will not be the party to begin escalation, but we will defend ourselves. Now, having all these military assets in a small waterway is in and of itself uh, prone to accident, particularly when you have people who are interested in accidents. So extreme prudence is required, and we believe that the United States is playing a very, very dangerous game. Very dangerous game, he's saying. The United States is playing there, of course, highly critical of the U.S.'s own presence there in the Persian Gulf region. One of the things that the Iranians have been saying, Julia, uh, for a while is that they don't want the situation to escalate. Iran's supreme leader even has come out and said uh, that uh, there won't be any war between the U.S. and the United States. But again, Jawad Zarif, they're making absolutely clear with the situation as tense as it is right now in that narrow waterway in the Persian Gulf, it really is very prone to miscalculations that could happen. So the situation there is still very, very dangerous, Julia. Fred, what about other nations here, too? Because, I mean, the foreign minister had called them the B team that were against the the Iranians at this moment. And he'd said, look, it's not just (laughs) about the likes of John Bolton. It's also about, you know, uh, MBS over in Saudi Arabia, the UAE. What are they also saying about the countries Mm. within the region, not just the United States? Mm. 
not, not, not surprisingly highly critical, and you're absolutely right. It's one of those terms that Jawad Zarif has coined, mostly using that on Twitter. The B team, uh, obviously referring, as you said, not only to John Bolton, but also Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, um, and, and then also Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel as well. Uh, he says that uh, those countries are making a big mistake in the region uh, by relying on the United States. Obviously, the Iranians are very critical of some of the U.S. policies. He says uh, that uh, the Iranians, uh, while he says they don't spend as much, for instance, on military spending as a lot of these other nations do, he believes that they are in a stronger position than most of these nations. Although the Iranians continuing to say that they also want dialogue, for instance, with the Saudis. Um, so they do think that uh, they, they would like the situation generally in this region uh, to de-escalate. They obviously, from their perspective, keep saying that they believe that the U.S. presence here uh, is something that continues to escalate the, state, uh, the situation, uh, destabilizes uh, the region. Obviously, America has a very, very different view on that. It's one of the things I asked Jawad Zarif about as well. And he also once again reiterated Iran's position uh, that uh, they have not been behind any of these recent attacks on ships that have taken place in the Persian Gulf area, Julia. Lots of uh, unanswered questions. Fred Pligan, thank you so much for that. Great job. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. Legendary Formula One driver Niki Lauda has died. The Austrian three times world champion driver achieved one of the most inspirational sporting comebacks of all time. His Ferrari crashed during a Grand Prix race in 1976 and he was pulled from the car with life-threatening burns. His injuries were so severe that a priest administered the last rites. Fast forward just 42 days and he was back in the driver's seat to defend his title at the Italian Grand Prix. Amanda Davies joins us now. Amanda, legendary driver, investor, entrepreneur. I mean, there's so many titles that we can give him, but a, a guiding light, I think, from the Mercedes team as well. He'll truly be missed. Yeah, Julia, I think maybe too often in sport, we can be accused of throwing out the word legend, but <laughs> certainly with Nicky Lauda, it is very, very apt, as you said, uh, a three-time world champion. But it wasn't just that. Yes, he equaled the world championships of the likes of the great Ayrton Senna. Only five drivers in the history of the sport have achieved more world championships than him. But it was everything else that went with it. Uh, so many people, of course, know the name Nicky Lauda because of that crash, that great rivalry with James Hunt from the 1976 season that was made into that Hollywood blockbuster just a couple of years ago. I was just talking to former Formula One world champion Sir Jackie Stewart. He said he was there in Monza, as you said, just 42 days after that stint in hospital where he's said to have died twice. And Sir Jackie said he looked at Nicky Lauda and said, what are you doing with the bandages still on his head, the wounds still being so incredibly raw, but a real mark of the man that he was determined to get back in that car and carry on his fight for the world championship title. He admitted afterwards he was absolutely petrified doing it, but he just felt if he wasn't then, he was never going to get back in the car. So that was him as a driver. But as you said, in recent times, he's been known 
amidst the paddock as the non-executive chairman of Mercedes, the team that have dominated Formula One in recent times. If you wanted to know where Nicky Lauda was in the paddock, you'd look around, look for the crowd, and then bang in the middle of it would be that infamous red cap of Nicky. He's the, the kind of man who, when he speaks, you just want to sit up and listen. And the Mercedes team principal, Toto Wolff, has paid tribute, as you were saying, saying, we have just lost a hero who staged the most remarkable comeback ever seen, but also a man who brought precious clarity and candour to modern Formula One. He will be greatly missed as our voice of common sense. And Nicky really was somebody who didn't mince his words. He had a view, certainly, on the state of Formula One in this day and age, the rivalries between the drivers, whether the drivers were not putting in the effort, doing as they should in, in the name of Formula One. I feel incredibly fortunate to have been able to share a few moments with him. Perhaps my favourite, actually, back in Vienna, where he lived with his family, uh, every morning he would make a point of taking his young children, twins, now 10 years of age, to school. He would take them to school, then go to a local hotel, the Imperial Hotel in Vienna. He would sit, have his breakfast, some boiled eggs and a bit of yoghurt, read the papers with his coffee and just discuss the world, life and times with the people at the hotel, with the staff uh, and those around him. And I feel very, very privileged to, to have been able to share just a little part of that. And thank you for sharing it with us, Amanda Davies there. Nikki Lauda, rest in peace. All right, let's move on. A federal judge has ordered an accounting firm to turn over to Congress Trump's financial records going back for years. In his ruling, the judge says the president is subject to the same legal scrutiny as anyone else, and Congress is within its rights to investigate the president. The decision may set a precedent for other judges considering whether to release President Trump's records. A man has been charged with assault after pro-Brexit politician Nigel Farage was hit by a milkshake during a campaign event on Monday. Police detained 32-year-old Paul Crowther at the scene. It comes amid a string of recent incidents of politicians being targeted with milkshakes days ahead of the EU elections. I'm not allowed to smile, but I will say shaken but not stirred, Nigel Farage. All right, still to come on First Move, we speak to a fund manager that predicted the huge volatility spike in 2018. Find out what she's thinking right now. And kicking off and hitting out the world's biggest shoe brands, urging the president to stamp out higher China tariffs. Stay with us. You're watching First Move. Welcome back to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing as far as futures are concerned this morning. An about turn from what we were seeing this time yesterday. Right now, futures in the green, keeping an eye on any potential bounce in the tech sector following that temporary retrieve coming in from the U.S. government for China's Huawei, of course, and the retail sector following some weaker earnings this morning, too. All right, let's get some market perspective. I'm joined now by Nancy Davies. She's founder of Quadratic Capital Management. She's a woman who called the 2018 volatility explosion and the stock market sell-off at the end of last year and joins us now. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. What do you think of markets right now? Oh, I'm very excited about our new product that's coming to market. It's uh, called Eyeball. It's a long, first long fixed income volatility product. Um, 
It also trades options on inflation expectations. So it seems like a very um, confusing time for markets given the very low level of volatility and very high both stocks and bond prices. So you're saying investors should be if nothing else, anticipating high volatility once again at this point because things have come down so low. Well, I think volatility is very, very compressed. We're at yes. generational lows for volatility. So I think for regular investors, you have to look at your asset allocation and look for what is good value. And I'd yes. say owning diversification now is good value. Most investors have real estate and then they have some amount of bonds and then they have some amount of stocks. So having something different in your portfolio, especially when it's very cheaply priced, in my Makes opinion, sense. is attractive, yeah. So take a step back and explain what you do with your fund because we sometimes talk on this show about exchange-traded funds, ETFs. Why did you look at this as a product to go, you know what, I think this is something where investors should be involved, can make money and actually traditionally seen as something that just tracks an underlying product, just does it more cheaply for an investor. Why is this interesting, do you think, right now? Yeah, so we see Eyeball as an access product, as a way to gain access to a market that individual investors or even institutional investors can't get on their own. Yeah. So for us, it's really a way of democratizing the financial markets, allowing, like, think about, you know, your parents or your your own savings. The majority of most individuals have the net worth tied up in their home Housing. and in real estate. <laughs> it's so sensitive to long-end interest rates. Yeah. And then your fixed income portfolio is so sensitive to inflation expectations. So we think it's a very attractive product to diversify your portfolio. So what you're creating here is products that ordinary people who want to perhaps protect their investments, their pensions, whatever it is, they can actually get access to a product that traditionally would they simply wouldn't be able to get access to yes. because it would be considered too complex. They'd have to be considered a, a, a far more um, superior, I guess, <laughs> investor in terms of their experience. Well, I think it's even, we trade options that are over the counter. So the OTC swaps market is approximately 28 times larger than the U.S. equity market cap. And it's really bizarre that there's no products that are in the rates markets in ETF packages. So, you know, it's mostly credit spreads. So it's trading corporate credit um, or sovereign credit or stocks. So we're really excited about giving investors choices and giving them access to the world's biggest asset class. What do you see right now when you look at markets? Because we introduced you and said, look, you spotted that there was going to be a problem in volatility in 2018. When you look at bond yields having come down, when you look at markets, fine, they've given back some some of their gains over the past week and week and a half, but we were trading at record highs. What do you see going on in the markets right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really challenging time for investors because you have stocks and bonds at all-time highs, and you have the whole rally that's happened in 2019 is really because central bankers came out and said, you know, the economy is not actually strong enough to continue quantitative tightening, so we're going to stop. Yeah. So it's really kind of negative reasons for stopping, and the markets have taken it as just gasoline on the fire, and everything has just rallied so much. So I think investors should be looking for diversification right now in their portfolio. They should be looking for other ways to generate yield, have a, a safe, relatively safe investment, but also diversify themselves. Because truly, you don't want to have, you know, 
credit spreads and equities tend to go down together, yes. right? Credit spreads widen, and so you can't just hedge rates and isolate credit. You want to also have exposure. We are um, using options that are on the shape of the yield curve, and a lot of people talk about the yield curve as a recession indicator. Yes. Um, so what that is, let me define it for the viewers. That's a a very quickly, because you have like yeah, 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, 30 <laughs> seconds. It's a difference between front-dated yields and longer-dated yields. So, so you're basically allowing investors to take a look at that, get access to that, and actually yeah. take a view on where you think it's going and what it means to the economy. Nancy, we'll get you back to discuss yeah. that in more detail. Nancy Davies there, the founder of Quadratic Capital Management. All right, we are counting down to the market open this morning. And eye on technology and eye on retail in particular, too. Plenty more to come on the show. You're watching first move. first move and the opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange for the second session this week. A slightly higher open expected for these markets and that is what we are seeing right now. Reprieve of course granted to China's Huawei easing some of the pressure on the big technology companies but also some of the smaller ones as well. Some of the providers in rural United States relying on Huawei's technology. Not so easy to diversify and uh, get that technology from elsewhere. So a 90-day reprieve right now, but we are seeing a reaction in some of these individual names. Let me walk you through them in our global movers this morning. Qualcomm in focus. The chipmaker said Monday it will stop supplying Huawei until further notice, of course, as a result now of the United States temporarily easing those restrictions. It's going to allow companies like Qualcomm that lost some 6% in yesterday's trading session to continue to trade with them. And that, of course, is going to be key. The question is how long does the reprieve last and does a trade deal come in the interim? Tesla also in focus. Morgan Stanley cutting its worst case scenario for Tesla shares from $97 to just $10 a share. They cited concerns about the company's increased debt load and Chinese demand, of course, for Tesla's product too. However, the firm's price target remains at $230 a share with an equal weight rating. Of course, the stock's currently trading around that $205, still down some 3.5% though in the session so far. Over to a retailer now, JCPenney. The shares sinking after earnings missed estimates as we were discussing with Paul earlier on in the show. Revenues though did come in line with expectations. Same store sales dropping though some 5.5% and of course they slashed their full year outlook too. So a challenge is there down some 9% in the session, early part of the session so far. What about Dow DuPont though? That stock also in focus, it said it will announce a $2 billion buyback program. Investors always like that kind of news. After the company split is completed next month, it's set to become an independent company as of June the 1st. And of course, then it will simply be called DuPont. Up some 2% on that news. All right, let's move on now. Famous footwear brands have voiced their concern and opposition to tariffs on China. I'm talking brands like Nike, Adidas, Under Armour. They're among some 170 firms who wrote to President Trump warning of an existential threat to the industry. They say the proposed tariffs will be, quote, catastrophic for consumers. The letter was posted on the website of the Footwear Distributors and Retailers of America. Matt Priest is the trade group's president and CEO, and he joins us now 
from Washington. Matt, fantastic to have you on the show with us. You quantified this. You said this could be up to a $7 billion additional expense for consumers. How did you get to that kind of number? Yeah, Julie, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. What's really interesting about this threat is the fact that we already pay duties on Chinese footwear, $1.5 billion a year. And so as we look to what the $7 billion number means, it means that an additional $3.5 billion would be put on Chinese footwear if the Trump administration proceeds with List 4 under this investigation. And so if you start to multiply that out as, the, as that's a cost on the first product as it crosses our borders, that has a multiple effect on the footwear consumer here in the U.S. And we already pay upwards of $3 billion in nudies uh, every single year in all footwear. And so that's why we're so, con- so concerned about this threat. Because the risk is if we see the president hit tariffs on the additional $325 billion worth of, of imports from China that currently aren't tariffed beyond what you're saying you already pay, that's what's going to create the additional burden here. So the message from, from these big brands and from the community is please don't do this. That's right. This is a movie we've seen play out so many times over. Our duties have been in place since 1930, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act of 1930. So, you know, the average import duty on a consumer good is 1.8, 1.9%. Our average duty is 12%, and we peak at 70%. So the thought of adding 25% on top of a, a 70, 70% tariff plastic shoe that's sold at mass retail for working families just seems unfathomable to us because we are already so heavily taxed when not all consumer goods can say the same. Now, I understand that labor costs in China are significantly lower than, say, here in the United States or elsewhere. But, you know, the president's counter to this would be, look, I don't want you manufacturing. I don't want you importing items from China into the United States. I want to reshore that business and and bring it back here. How easy is it for companies to, even if they don't bring it back to the United States, to say, fine, we're not going to import from China. We'll shift our supply chain elsewhere. Yeah, it's not that easy at all. Footwear is very labor intensive, very capital intensive. So it takes a lot of infrastructure, a lot of planning, a lot of uh, support to make these changes. And you can't do it overnight. In fact, a decade ago, 93% of our footwear came from China. And today that number is 69%. And so we've been moving away from China anyway because of uh, rising labor costs, uh, labor shortages in China, and potential trade disruption. And so we've been trying to move as quickly as we can. But the fact of the matter is China still provides a vast majority of children's shoes. Almost 100 percent of children's shoes sold in the U.S. are made in China. A vast majority of the shoes that are sold at places like Walmart and Target. And so you can't just pick that up overnight, move it like you could for for other types of products. And that's where the big concern is. If this switch gets flipped on over the summer and consumers are going to start feeling that that price pressure almost immediately and that's a big concern for us. I mean these are incredible statistics so 100% of children's shoes imported from China, 69% overall imported from China. In a best case scenario how low do you think that percentage could go over the coming years even just to offset some of the challenges that these companies have faced? Yeah, we think in the next five years, Julia, that we're looking at maybe we, maybe we can get to about the 60 percent, 61, 62 percent of volume come from, coming from China. 
Uh, and that just shows you how slowly things move as, it, as, it, as you look to move footwear production around the world. Um, and, and the thought of actually moving it back to the United States, unfortunately, is not a reality. There, are footwear there is footwear production here in the U.S., uh, but it is for very niche markets, for very uh, high-cost footwear that meets a certain need. And the fact is, when you have less than 4% unemployment and you don't have the capacity or the labor, the skilled labor that's necessary to produce 2.3 billion pairs of shoes, is which what we import in every single year, you know, it's, it's a pipe dream to think that you can bring that back and serve a, a 21st century American consumer. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Matt, do these companies, though, understand that, that China does need to be tackled here to some degree, even if they disagree with the method at which the, uh, upon which the White House is, is using here in the form of tariffs? Because for some of these big brands like Nike, like Adidas, like Under Armour, they suffer with their own effective intellectual property theft from, from China with counterfeit products as well. Do, do they believe that China needs tackling, just perhaps not this way about d with doing it? Yeah, I don't think you'll find anyone who disagrees with the fact that, that the U.S. government needs to engage with China on intellectual property. In fact, as an organization, this being our 75th year, we spend every single year we send in comments to the U.S. government outlining intellectual property challenges in China specifically. And so that's a, a huge concern. Uh, but the administration set out under its investigation to tackle forced technology transfer, intellectual property in certain areas of the China 2025 policy. And so as we've looked through this process, we support, we support the, the ends by which they're seeking this, but the means have been, we think, overly burdensome. The uncertainty is absolutely driving our members crazy. And so that's just one of the challenges we face as you're trying to make sourcing decisions for spring of 2020 and not knowing what the cost will be, not knowing if there's gonna be 25% additional tariff added onto the cost of the goods that you've already agreed to prices on, that's just very difficult to plan for, and that's where our biggest concerns lie. Yeah, huge business impact. Matt Priest, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for uh, bringing us your insight on this. My pleasure. Thank you. Trade, of course, the impact on the U.S. consumer, the U.S. economy, all subjects that I'm going to be discussing in an exclusive interview that I'll bring you tomorrow with Eric Rosengren, the president of the Boston Federal Reserve. That's going to air tomorrow at 9 a.m. here in New York, 2 p.m. in London. So watch this space for that. I'm really excited. We're going to take a quick break, though, here on First Move. Still to come, we can steal. British Steel blaming Brexit uncertainty for pushing it to the brink. We'll bring you the latest on the company's fight for survival. Just ahead, stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Will the British government ride to the rescue? That's the question 25,000 workers will be asking themselves right now as British Steel teeters on the brink of bankruptcy. The UK government says it's in talks with the steelmaker, which blames Brexit uncertainty for its plight. Anna Stewart joins me now from London. Gut feel on this one, Anna. Is it all about Brexit? Because it's a pretty challenged industry and a sector, never mind with Brexit involved. I mean, it's a great point. Brexit, of course, accentuates all of its problems, but it's far and it's far from the only thing. We have rising raw material costs, particularly iron ore, cheaper steel from China. That's been a problem for this industry, particularly in Britain, for decades. However, Brexit is a problem, and I'll tell you why. 70% of British steel's products do get sold to the EU, to North Africa, to Turkey. All of those customers have been put off, perhaps, from buying from British steel, given that a hard Brexit is still 
possible with all the tariffs and customs costs that come with it. And that deadline, of course, uh, has moved a few times as now at the end of October. So you can see why they might not sign on contracts. But if we look at the overall issue here and whether the government will step in, and it's said that if it doesn't stump up £30 million, that's $38 million today or tomorrow, this company will be forced to enter administration. But it's facing huge political pressure, which is why the UK government may well act, particularly as the company says it is all to do with Brexit. Now, we haven't had a verdict yet from the British government, but we did hear earlier today from the British business minister. Take a listen to what he had to say. We have been in ongoing discussions with the company, and I am sure the House will understand that we cannot comment in details at this stage. We will, however, update the House when there is more information available. I can, however, reassure the House that, subject to strict legal bounds, the government will leave no stone unturned in its support for the steel industry. The government will leave no stone unturned. That certainly suggests that the government may act here. And it's interesting because the Conservative Party traditionally does not prop up failing businesses or industries. It allows market forces to take over. This is much more like the Labour Party's policy of nationalisation and helping businesses. However, it is seriously under pressure, not least as the party also faces the prospect of uh, EU parliamentary elections coming up in the next few days. Julia? Oh, yeah, I would have made exactly the same points. Nationalisation versus a bailout for the private owners versus the timing here with European elections. Anna Stewart, yep, bottom line. More to come on First Move, the budding business. The company that's stepping in where the regulators aren't to help set the standards in cannabis-related products. Stay with us, that's to come. Welcome back to First Move. Will the British government ride to the rescue? That's the question 25,000 workers will be asking themselves right now as British steel teeters on the brink of bankruptcy. The UK government says it's in talks with the steelmaker, which blames Brexit uncertainty for its plight. Anna Stewart joins me now from London. Gut feel on this one, Anna. Is it all about Brexit? Because it's a pretty challenged industry and a sector, never mind with Brexit involved. I mean, it's a great point. Brexit, of course, accentuates all of its problems, but it's far and it's far from the only thing. We have rising raw material costs, particularly iron ore, cheaper steel from China. That's been a problem for this industry, particularly in Britain, for decades. However, Brexit is a problem, and I'll tell you why. 70% of British steel's products do get sold to the EU, to North Africa, to Turkey. All of those customers have been put off, perhaps, from buying from British steel, given that a hard Brexit is still possible with all the tariffs and customs costs that come with it. And that deadline, of course, uh, has moved a few times as now at the end of October. So you can see why they might not sign on contracts. But if we look at the overall issue here and whether the government will step in, and it's said that if it doesn't stump up £30 million, that's $38 million today or tomorrow, this company will be forced to enter administration. But it's facing huge political pressure, which is why the UK government may well act, particularly as the company says it is all to do with Brexit. Now, we haven't had a verdict yet from the British government, but we did hear earlier today from the British business minister. Take a listen to what he had to say. We have been in ongoing discussions with the company, and I am sure the House will understand that we cannot comment in details at this stage. We will, however, update the House when there is more information available. I can, however, reassure the House that subject to strict legal bounds, the government will leave no stone unturned in its support for the steel industry. 
the government will leave no stone unturned. That certainly suggests that the government may act here. And it's interesting because the Conservative Party traditionally does not prop up failing businesses or industries. It allows market forces to take over. This is much more like the Labour Party's policy of nationalisation and helping businesses. However, it is seriously under pressure, not least as the party also faces the prospect of uh, EU parliamentary elections coming up in the next few days. Julia? Oh, yeah, I would have made exactly the same points. Nationalisation versus a bailout for the private owners versus the timing here with European elections. Anna Stewart, yep, bottom line. More to come on First Move, the budding business. The company that's stepping in where the regulators aren't to help set the standards in cannabis-related products. Stay with us, that's to come. Welcome back to First Move and a look at today's boardroom brief. The chairman of oil giant BP says the world's energy consumption is on an unsustainable path. Hal Glunt says BP is transforming itself to meet the challenges of climate change, though he didn't spell out any new measures that the company is taking. The firm says it's facing investor pressure at today's annual meeting to be clearer about how it will make its business more sustainable. Snap has appointed a new chief financial officer. The owner of Snapchat has been shaking up its leadership after seeing user numbers fall following a disappointing redesign. Its share price has more than doubled this year and revenue grew faster than expected in the first quarter. In Britain, celebrity chef Jamie Oliver's restaurant business has gone into administration. His chain of 25 outlets employs more than 1,000 people. The group had been seeking a buyer in recent months amid growing competition in the UK market for casual dining. 
All right, let's move on. The cannabis gold rush has seen a lot of hype about something known as CBD. You may be familiar with it. It's the chemical compound found in hemp and marijuana, and it's showing up in everything from shampoos to gummy bears. Standard Dose is one of the retailers to offer the products, pitching them as a natural way to improve health and well-being. I asked the company's chief executive, Antti Saniga, to explain what's in his products and why there are no psychoactive ingredients. That's the illegal bit. Listen in. Cannabis is the family of plants. Then you have industrial hemp underneath, and you also have marijuana. Uh, industrial hemp, according to the 2018 Farm Bill, is any uh, cannabis that is grown with less than 0.3% THC. Uh, marijuana has high concentrations of THC. THC is the psychoactive compound that actually gets you high, while CBD has no psychoactive properties. So as long as it's below 0.3%. Exactly. Then it's industrial hemp. Exactly. Yep. And therefore it's okay to use and it's fine. Exactly. So you are tackling issues like pain, sleep, exactly. anxiety. Talk to me about the kind of products that you were testing because you've gone through everything yeah. to try and help consumers select the right things and you were finding all sorts of exciting things where people had not tested the products. Yeah. Um, there is zero regulation in this space and that's one of the big challenges too. Exactly. I mean, I think for me, there, the FDA hasn't ruled. There's been no conversations yeah. to date of kind of like what, what is next for this whole industry. Uh, meanwhile, consumers are faced with all of these issues, pain, sleep, anxiety. Um, we have a big anti-pharma um, movement that's really happening in the country. And I think that's really important to take note of because I think that's also fueling this. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about a plant. It comes from nature. It comes from the ground. Um, and it's only been illegal since 1937. Say, we've been around for thousands yeah. of years yeah. used for thousands of exactly. years. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me personally and, and for Standard Dose as a brand, uh, we do not support kind of uh, cannabis culture, as you will, of what it's been stigmatized as. We really want to take and think about uh, cannabis from a medicinal purpose. So for our customers, it's really pain, sleep and anxiety, how combinations of CBD, sometimes with less than the 0.3% THC, how are products created that actually can help customers feel better. The CBD floodgates opened after President Trump signed the Farm Bill into law back in December. It legalized the production of hemp. But as you just heard, the products are still not regulated in the United States. And I asked Anthony whether he would welcome more oversight. I think definitely regulation on the THC side. We do know it has some psychoactive abilities. So I do think that on the THC side, over a certain limit, um, there should be some regulation yes. uh, and, and, and also some, some rules that you need to go through to actually be able to obtain um, this. But I think on the CBD side, you know, there are no psychoactive compounds. So, and it does help with inflammation, it does help with pain, it does help with some anxiety. So I think utilizing it in those three categories under a certain milligram of CBD, I do think that the consumer should be able to be able to access that. Similar to a nutritional supplement, like you getting vitamin C or vitamin D, we have an endocannabinoid system in our body. Yes. And that endocannabinoid system in our body is deficient of CBD. And so by adding it, that's actually what's causing the benefits. It's a supplement yeah. To, yeah. To, to your body's own, uh, own workings and its own system. What conversations are you having with consumers about the, perhaps the conversations they need to be having here in the United States at the state level yeah. to, to make sure that their senators and their representatives actually understand because there are other benefits as well. There's tax benefits yeah. as well if this industry is allowed to, to flourish. I think no matter what happens, I think the IRS will have to step in and really start to say, hey, there's a lot of tax dollars sitting on the table. Consumer understands the benefit. We have customers coming to the site 
and, and buying one sleep patch and then coming back and buying 30 more. <laughs> so I, I know for these consumers it's working and they're buying the product and it's helping them live a better life. So I think at the end of the day, if uh, if the FDA doesn't regulate soon, I think the IRS should really step in and say, <laughs> hey, there's a lot of tax revenue sitting on the table that we can be collecting and it's a whole new market that we can open up and, and, and untap. Finally, we talked about what the future holds for his, his company. He's now raising money. I also asked him what the feedback has been from investors at this stage in the company's growth. Really for us, it's about an experiential retail destination. Um, that destination is more holistic wellness. So right now for consumers, if you want products, you're running over to Sephora to maybe get your beauty products, you're running to Whole Foods to get nutritional supplements, uh, maybe GNC, right? You're running to all of these different companies. And, there, and then you have to go to your yoga class or you have to go over to Equinox for, for working out. Um, so what we're really trying to do is create a holistic wellness hub that's centered around plant-based medicine, I think. Right. What we put inside our body is as important as what we put on our body. And so that's really the messaging that we're saying. So we do things like daily yoga classes, daily meditation. Um, we have a beauty bar where you can try on any of the products, wash your hands, wash your face. You can sample any products within the retail experience. Um, we have yoga on the roof. So it's, it's a really cool experience. <laughs> Holistic. Yeah. What are investors saying to you, potential investors? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two sides, right? There's straightforward cannabis investors who are looking at a gold rush. Yeah. Um, and they're saying, wow, this market's growing super fast. How can we get involved? How can we be a part of that? And there are other people that are focusing more on wellness. And, and those investors are the ones that are most interesting to me because they understand the long-term benefits. Uh, one in three millennials actually suffer from uh, anxiety disorder, yeah. uh, according to a recent study. And the CDC actually said that sleep is, is, is a national emergency. So because of that, I think it's really important that we take a step back and we look at how can we incorporate plants. We eat processed food, we eat unhealthy things yes. all over, and then we take prescription drugs, right? So let's step back to plants and let's bring them into our life. And I think that those type of investors that are interested in that part and that messaging, um, those are fewer, but those are the ones that I think will have the long-term success and not just ride the fad. Have you raised money personally we have, as a company? Yeah, so we, we closed a seed round of funding yes. end of last year. We worked with a private equity firm and, and we're opening up a Series A now. My big takeaway from this interview was how little I actually understood and knew about the products and the fact that there simply are no standards. So the takeaway, I think, is uh, be careful what you're buying if you're investing in these products because they don't always have what it says on the label. All right, let me give you a look at what we're seeing as far as market movements are concerned this morning. We were seeing a more positive start to the session. We've continued with that right now. Some six-tenths of a percent higher for the S&P 500. Keep an eye on what we're seeing in the tech sector in particular, too, as a reaction to the relaxation of restrictions on Huawei. More to come on The Express, but that's it for First Move. Thank you for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.